0: Romans 8 this morning, we are back studying the life of Paul after a brief detour. Detour that we took because as we looked at Paul talking about our state, our condition in Romans 8, our as in you and me, our, our as in all of creation, our, Paul said we are groaning waiting for the return of Jesus. We we noticed that and we noticed the assumption that that was underlying that. The assumption that Paul was making in saying that. We, he said Romans 8:22, we know that the whole creation us included. We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. That In verse 22, and then that same idea for the next few verses repeats itself. Paul saying we, Paul saying our, Paul saying ourselves over and over, that plural pronoun, as we wait for Jesus. His assumption clearly being, his assumption unmistakably being that we're waiting for Jesus together. We, the body of Christ we the family of God, we the church, we wait. So we took a week, actually we took two weeks, a week before Christmas and then a week after Christmas to explore that idea. What does it really mean to be the church, to be a community of faith in the true sense of the word? Well, we're back in Romans this morning, beginning in verse 25, where another discovery is waiting for us. But this time, it's not lurking beneath the surface. It's going to be right there shouting at us. This time, it's not an assumption that we're going to see. It's a declaration Paul makes that we're going to hear. As we wait together for the return of Jesus, Paul is going to say, we're not only waiting together with each other, we're waiting together with God. We eagerly wait, Paul says, verse 25. Let's dive in. We eagerly wait for it, for the return of Christ. With perseverance, we hang in. We encourage one another. We eagerly wait for Jesus' return. As we wait, as the body of Christ, likewise, he continues. In the same way, in the same manner, in the exact same fashion, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, in our waiting. As we wait for the return of Christ, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, helps us wait. Helps us in our waiting. Helps us in our groaning. Helps us in our not knowing. Helps us in our contending with this fallen world full of fallen people, ourselves included. The Spirit helps us in our weakness in our wishing, in our wanting, in our waiting. And we know that. That's not shocking. Jesus promised that. Jesus told us that. He said, John 14, 16, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to pray the Father, and he will send you a helper. Helper, capital H. Helper. I'll pray the Father, he will send the Holy Spirit, who will be with you. And we talked last week about the Holy Spirit. I think every week since we've been in Romans 8, we've talked about the Holy Spirit. And we talked last week about how the power of the Holy Spirit is available to each of us as a believer. The power that raised Jesus from the grave dwelling in us, and and the gifting of the Holy Spirit that he's given each one of us as anointing. He's equipping to, to minister to one another, allowing us, empowering us to be the church, loving and serving one another. Well, here in these next verses, Paul's expanding on that thought. He's taking what he's already said, and he's broadening it. And he's reminding us, the Holy Spirit not only ministers to us through us, I mean, that's a big idea unto itself, that the Holy Spirit ministers to us through the gifts, through the anointing and the equipping that he's placed upon us, But he not only does that, he not only ministers to us through us, he ministers to us by interceding for us before the throne of God the Father. For we do not know, still verse 26, we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. We should know we don't know. We wish we did, but we don't. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us, prays for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And some of you are leaning forward because you know that's an invitation to all kinds of rabbit trails. The Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings? What kind of groanings? What form do they take? Is is Paul talking about tongues? Is this tongues here? Or is he talking about something else? Or is he talking about tongues and something else? I'm happy to have that conversation. But that's not what we're going to focus on this morning. Grab me after service because there's some chewy stuff we can get into. But for now, I want to stay big picture. Rather than debate the form of these groanings, which we could all day, let's focus on the fact of them. The fact that when we don't know what to do, when we don't know what move to make, what position to take, when we don't even know how to pray, God the Holy Spirit prays for us. And that's amazing. And that's more... I think, more than John Bunyan's classic line, our best prayers have more groaning than words. John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, classic Christian author. That's a great line. That's that's a true statement. Our best prayers have more groans than words. I agree with that. But I think Paul is also saying more than that. Paul is saying... That the Holy Spirit, who is our helper and comforter and counselor, is also our advocate and intercessor. He is a prayer warrior on our behalf. And if we don't comprehend just how incredible that is, Paul tells us in the very next verse, verse 27, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. It's sort of a grand unification statement here, if if you break it down. He's saying God knows us perfectly, and he knows our situation perfectly. He knows us, he knows our circumstances. He sees our options, he sees our choices, he sees our problems and possible solutions, all with perfect clarity. And with equal clarity, he knows, the Spirit knows the mind of the Father. Because God the Spirit is God, just as God the Father is God. So the Spirit knows the thoughts that the Father has towards us. Thoughts of good, not evil, to give us a future and a hope. The Spirit knows the ways in which the Father wants always and only what's best for us, because that's what agape love is. What do you get when you put all of that together? God knows us perfectly. Knows our lives and circumstances perfectly. Knows his own will perfectly. So he can pray perfectly and as a result, verse 28, he can answer perfectly. And we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, because God answers his prayers on our behalf perfectly. That was Romans 8:28. We're used to seeing it as a standalone verse. We're not as accustomed to, to coming up on it in context, are we? We're used to seeing it and quoting it and reminding each other of it as a, as a freestanding exhortation. All things work together for good for those who love God to, to those who are the called according to his purpose. It's one of the most amazing promises in Scripture, and it's not for nothing that we remind each other of it. But I think it's actually more powerful in the context of everything that Paul is saying, above it and below it. Never read one scripture verse, right? Always read a couple above and a couple below, at least. What what do we get when we do? As we wait together for Christ's return, even knowing that we're saved, even knowing that we're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, even knowing that we have each other as the body of Christ, we're still in a cold, cruel world. Because the world is still fallen. We're being saved out of it, but the world is still fallen. Humanity is still fallen. Human institutions, economies, and government, even families, fallen. And we do the best we can, but we're still fallen. Our souls have been redeemed, but they're trapped in bodies that are fallen, bodies that have a sin nature, bodies that break and get sick and get old and, 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 and crave sin. And so we cry out. We groan. When will it end? How will it end? What's going to happen? How much more? How much more do I have to go on groaning, Lord? And what are the right things to do in the meantime? I mean, love God, love people, sure. I don't always know what that looks like. I don't always know what that means. A lot of times, I don't know what the right thing to do is. And God's answer, Paul just told us, God's answer is, I know. I know you don't know. But I do. and I've got this. When you don't know, I know. And I'm praying for you based on what I know. I know you. I know your life. I know what's best for you. I know how to love you. I know how to love the people around you, through you. And I'm praying for you. And I'm going to hear my prayers, and I'm going to answer my prayers. And what happens to you is going to be good. It's going to accord with my love. I'm praying for you, God says. Hold on to that. God never, ever, it never entered his mind to leave us to fend for ourselves. He continues, verse 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? There's a lot going on there. We'll circle back and and pick some of it up next week, and, and maybe the week after that. But this morning, remember, we're staying big picture. And big picture, what we're seeing is God's promise to not abandon us. There's an old, I can't, I can't remember if it's a worship song, if it's a country song. God didn't lift us up just to let us down. Either way, it's true. I had, I had a, a children's pastor that I, that I served with who would, who would remind us, God didn't bring the children of Israel out of Egypt to let them drown in the Red Sea. And that's true too. God didn't send his son to die on a cross to desert us. How cruel would that have been? Hey, I came, I sought you, I saved you. (laughs) Ha, psych! Now you're on your own. That's not even a little bit the character of God. No, the character of God is to never leave us nor forsake us. The character of God is to finish what he's started in us. Why? Because he loves us. That's what he just said. I love you, and when you don't know how to pray for you, I do, and I am. I'm praying for you, and I'm hearing those prayers, and I'm answering those prayers, and I'm doing what's best for you. I'm working out good in your life. Always and forever. He can do that, because he knows what we need. He can do that. He does do that. He just said, I am always and forever loving you in ways that only I can. That's amazing. I'm I'm, I'm overusing that word this morning, but it's it's the best that I've got, and I know that it falls short. It's mind-blowing. The love of God, it's incomprehensible. But here's the thing. As we read these verses, we can see they're supposed to be a source of encouragement. They're supposed to be cause for hope. There's reassurance for us in these words. The God of water, earth, and sky praying for me perfectly, hearing his prayers perfectly, answering perfectly, loving me perfectly. Wow! That's what they should be. Those verses should be encouraging us perfectly. But tell me if it isn't true that sometimes they do just the opposite. Isn't it true that sometimes we read passages like this and we start to seethe with frustration? Resentment starts to build up. Why does it have to be so mysterious? When you don't know how to pray, don't worry. God prays for you. When you can't see the good that's happening, have no fear there's good there or there will be. God promised. Doesn't that tick you off sometimes? Why does he have to promise? Why doesn't he just tell us? Why can't he just show us? God prays for us when we don't know. Why can't he just tell us how to pray so we can pray? Why can't we see what it all means? Why do we have to take God's word for it? Faith is stupid. But consider the alternative. What if we got... what what we want, what, what we think we want. What if God did unzip his playbook for us, did show us his plans, provided more details, a clearer picture, a better understanding. Here's what's going on behind the scenes. Here's what I've got in motion. Three problems, three immediate problems I see with that, which means there's probably way more than three. If I can think of three, there's probably 300 or 3 million, but three I think will be enough to convince us Maybe what we think we want isn't what we really want. Let's think about it for a minute. By a minute, I mean the rest of the message. (laughs) Let's think about this together. What does the Bible tell us happens? Maybe not every time, but an awful lot of the time when God does pull back the curtain. And let people glimpse what's going on backstage. A lot of times, people get excited and they rush in to make things happen. If you're taking notes, that's bullet point number one. With too much information, we rush in. This is what's supposed to happen, God? Okay, well, let's make it happen. Let's get going. That's where we're going. Let's head there. Why aren't we going there? Let's get there. Biblical examples. Abraham. God said, countless descendants. More than the stars in the sky, more than the sands on the seashore. Abraham waits, waits a little longer, waits a little longer than that. He said, okay, Sarah's not getting this done. Where's my maidservant? Let's get this show on the road. We're supposed to have descendants here. And so we end up with Ishmael and 4,000 years of conflict in the Middle East. New Testament. New Testament. Jesus says, "Tarry in Jerusalem after the resurrection, before the ascension, as he's commissioning his disciples, starry in Jerusalem. Don't start doing ministry without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's coming. He's not here yet. Wait. Just Don't just do something. Stand there. And they said, oh, okay, Jesus, we won't. Don't do any ministry. Wait for the Holy Spirit. We'll just, maybe, while we're waiting, roll some dice and pick a replacement for Judas. We're not going to do any ministry. We're just you know going to pick an apostle. And they end up with Matthias instead of Paul. When Paul gets saved, speaking of Paul, Jesus says, Paul, Saul, you're my apostle to the Gentiles. Galatians 1 and several other places. You're my apostle to the Gentiles, Paul. Paul says, great, but I'm just going to evangelize the Jews here in Damascus. And that's fine, except they try to kill him. So he goes to Jerusalem and tries to witness to the Jews there who tried to kill him. And finally, they haul him over the wall in a a basket and say, Paul, just just go to Tarsus. Just try not to die. Before Paul, there was Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. There's Jesus, Peter, James, and John, Moses, and Elijah. Peter says, this is the kingdom. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. This is great. What do I know about the kingdom? We celebrate the Feast of Sukkot in the kingdom, the Feast of Booths. I'm going to build some booths. Booth for you, Jesus, booth for Moses, booth for Elijah, I'm building booths. And Jesus is saying, Peter, no, just 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 stop. No, I'm building booths. <laughs> After the resurrection, Peter and the others are there, Acts 1, 6. Are you gonna restore the kingdom now? Because I thought it was on top of the mountain, but it wasn't on top of the mountain, but, but now you're resurrected and stuff, so it's gotta be now. It's now, isn't it? And Jesus says, okay, there's this whole thing called the church age. And it's gonna go on for centuries. Just take a deep breath. See, see, contrast that, contrast that with people in Scripture who get it right. Because sometimes people in Scripture get it right. And when they get it right, what are they doing most of the time? Most of the time, they're waiting on the Lord, aren't they? David. David, when he was getting it right, got it as right as anybody ever. Man after God's own heart. Waited on the Lord. David was anointed king of Israel. If if that's me, I can't wait to get started. I got a list of things that I'm going to do as king. One problem, Saul was in the way. And he had opportunities, right? He had opportunities to take Saul out of the way. He had opportunities to take Saul out of the game. But he waited. And he trusted. And that's so rare, isn't it? David's almost the exception that proves the rule. Most of us, most of the time, if we get a glimpse of God's plans, okay, God, let's make this happen. I'll help. (laughs) Think about it in your own life. Think about it in your own life, because I'm guessing that you can think of examples where you jumped God's timing. You took a little information, a little insight, and you ran with it. And you ended up in deep mud. I am, I am so grateful for the times that God kept me in the dark. Ann and I knew each other for 10 years before we got married. I'm grateful that until the very end of those 10 years, we had no idea God was calling us together. Because if we had gotten together much sooner, it would have been a disaster. I am grateful that God didn't tell us that we were moving out of New Jersey sooner. We would have ended up in Minnesota, and it wouldn't have gone well. I'm grateful that God didn't say, hey, I'm calling you to be a senior pastor, before he did. Or I might have said yes to any of the times that people came knocking on my door. Hey, do you want to take over this church? Do you want to take over that church? Every church that was offered to me is now defunct. And I wouldn't have made any difference. God was trying to shut them down. But if I had had known, oh, I'm calling you to be a senior pastor, I would have ridden in on my white horse and tried to save it. Because that's what we do. Too much knowledge makes us dangerous to ourselves and others. That, that's, that's one response I think we'd have. Many of us, at least. Too much knowledge, in, in, instead of saying, okay, well, well, okay, God, you, you've still got this, and I'll follow your lead, and I'll submit to your timing. No, I think we'd rush into things and make a haggis out of it. Second response I can imagine... I don't have to imagine. I've done this one too. Second response I think many of us would have is to resist God's way of doing things, to push back on his plans, to say, no, that's good, but I've got something better. 21 years ago this month, my daughter was born, born by C-section after 36 hours of labor. You should really send mom a thank you note, Michaela. (laughs) (laughs) So finally, they, they, they wheel Anne into the OR, and, and I get to come too, and one of the first things that they do is put up a surgical drape, like a, like a, like a curtain at, at her neck pointing straight up, cloth, like, a, like a cloth wall, so she can't see what's going on south of her neck. And for the next, I don't know what it was, 40 minutes? For the next 40 minutes, Anne is saying, so, so what's happening right now? And I'd look and I'd say, oh, you don't want to know. <laughs> And, and, and after a while, she said, "Hey, the nurse that was there, where, where'd that nurse go?" And I said, "Oh, you really don't want to know." <laughs> okay, why is the doctor kneeling on the the doctor's kneeling on the table? I can see him over. Why is the doctor on that? You don't want to know. <laughs> she thought she wanted to know. She was very, very convinced that she wanted all that information. The doctors were pretty sure that she didn't, that she shouldn't have it. Because because one of two things. Either she'd try to help, because it's Anne, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure I can do something to help things along. Or, maybe without even meaning to, she would resist. She would push back. And neither one would be good. So the drape stayed in place. And for the exact same reason, God keeps his drape most of the time squarely between us and his plans. Because when we're not rushing and trying to help, as often as not, we're like Peter. We're resisting. Peter, Peter how? Peter, like Jesus, says, Peter, so the thing is they're going to crucify me. And Peter says, oh no, they're not. <laughs> well, it's kind of a plan, Peter. I don't care. <laughs> and then a little while later in the garden, hey, Peter, look, they're coming to arrest me. Over my dead body, I got a sword. Every step along the way, Jesus says, So, Peter, this is how it has to be. And Peter says, No, I've got a better idea. Not so, Lord. Star Trek fans, 30 second nerd break. This is literally the whole plot of City on the Edge of Forever written by science fiction great Harlan Ellison. Kirk and Spock go back in time. Kirk falls in love with Joan Collins, but he's got to let her die because she's going to start a peace movement, and if she doesn't die, the United States never enters World War II. The Nazis win. They take over the world. The future doesn't happen. So McCoy tries to save her. Kirk doesn't let him save her, and he has a meltdown. Why didn't you let me save her? Saving lives is good, and she's all about peace, and peace is good. But the moral is sometimes when we do the obvious thing, the obviously right thing, the clearly good thing, it ends up in disaster. End of nerd break. Think about the turning points in your life. Think about the the, the watersheds, the crossroads, the, the, the pivotal events that make you you. How many of them would you actually have welcomed if you saw them coming? I think about my dad's suicide. I think about the end of my pre-Jesus marriage. I think about different heartaches in ministry. And I can tell you now the undeniable, unmistakable good God brought from every one of them. Brought me to him. Brought me to Anne. Brought us a daughter. Brought us into ministry. Brought us to Wichita. But I can tell you Even if God had painted a picture of all of those things ahead of time, this is what's going to happen, and this is how it's going to hurt. But this is the good I'm going to do from it. I would have said, "Yeah, God, find another way." That actually, no, what I would have said is, "God, I'll find another way," because that sounds painful and horrible. I'm going to find another way because I don't like pain. And I like to be in control. Ahaz in Isaiah 7. Rob mentioned that we're back in Isaiah on Wednesday nights, which is just a delight. Isaiah, we're going to be in 49 this week, but back in Isaiah 7, pivot point of the book. God calls King Ahaz to meet with Isaiah, wants to speak to Ahaz, king of Judah, through the prophet Isaiah. And he says to Ahaz, so here's the thing. You're in danger. The nation's in danger. Here's how I'm going to save you. And all you have to do is do nothing. All you have to do is believe that I'm God and then I'm going to make this happen and I'll prove to you that I'm God. Pick a miracle, any miracle, and I'll do it for you because I really want you to understand this is God talking and this is God who's going to intervene on Judah's behalf. And Ahaz says, yeah, I think I like my plan better. Because your plan is all about faith. My plan is political alliances and military strategy. I think that makes more sense. Made more sense to Ahaz. But the result is disaster for Judah. Because God said to Ahaz, trust me. Stand firm in your faith, Isaiah 7, 9. Stand firm in your faith or you won't be standing much longer. Ahaz chose door number two. He resisted God's plans. And the results were predictable. It, which, which, which shows us something else in the process. Third, third big problem with lifting that drape, because you just got to see what's on the other side and tell the surgeon how to do the surgery. He has restricted the options to what made sense to him. Third and final bullet point, restrict. It's sort of inevitable if you think about it. If we say, God, don't do anything unless you explain it to me First. God, don't do anything unless you explain it in terms that I will understand. Well, we're still going to be looking through our eyes, aren't we? We'll still be processing with our minds, trying to make sense of God's ways that are above our ways, so far above that they're past finding out. How does that work? How does it work to cram infinity's plans into a finite mind? It doesn't. It doesn't work. What it would mean is that God would be limited. If if making sense to you and me were the requirement, then God's plans would be limited by human intellect. His way of dealing with us would be constrained by mortal logic. How much would that constrain God? I sometimes use the expression, God's playing chess while we're playing tic-tac-toe. The the real distance is way bigger than that. The real distance much greater than that. The number of possible positions on a chessboard is 10 to the 40th power. That's 10 10 billion times 10 billion times 10 billion times 10 billion. That's the number of legal positions on a chessboard. That's the number of possible combinations for 32 pieces and pawns on a 64 square board. Okay, mind blowing, right? Let's kick it up a notch. How many different ways are there to arrange 8 billion people in 195 countries speaking 7100 languages? Every one known by God, but at the same time everyone interacting, everyone exercising free will. God, what are your plans for those 8 billion people? Plans that factor in the free will of every one of them. All of the people doing all of the things that people do. God explain that to me. And and explain it to me in in a way that's going to make sense to me. Asking God to do that is quite simply asking God to stop being God. Asking God to explain his plans for one person is, is, is usually beyond our imagination. Think about the men and women who spend time with Jesus. Months, years, some of them. Sitting under his teaching. Hearing him discuss God's plans. Listening to him unpack scripture. Prophecies related to his plan. The disciples still found themselves on the Emmaus Road three days after the crucifixion, saying, yeah, I guess that didn't come together. Jesus catches up with them and he said, hang on, didn't the Christ have to suffer? Didn't Scripture teach that? Didn't the prophets prophesy that? Isn't this exactly what was supposed to happen? Their minds refused to comprehend it. How can suffering be good? No, no, they're, 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 so that he must have meant something else. So Jesus says, okay, let's try again. Open your Bibles to the beginning. Let me walk you through it. The suffering servant is clearly pictured in the Hebrew Bible. But their minds refused to see it. How much more so do our minds rebel when the suffering servant is us? When God says, I'm going to do something really, really good, but it's going to hurt along the way. Now, now don't, don't, don't speak to me those words, God. I mean, even with things far more ordinary far more pedestrian than than crucifixion and resurrection. Our ability to see and understand what's happening in the world is so limited. Our ability to reconcile what's right in front of us with the big picture, it's incredibly limited. Max Lucado tells a story. Don't love all of Max's theology. He's a great storyteller. And he tells a story you might have heard about an old man who had a horse. Lived lived alone in a tiny village, and and he had a horse that was magnificent. It was known for, for, for miles and miles around. No one had ever seen such a majestic, splendorous beast. People offered amazing, fabulous prices, a king's ransom for it. The king wanted to buy it from him. Name your price, he said. No, this horse is my friend. You don't sell a friend. You can't put a price on friendship. People said, oh, he's a fool. And one morning, the horse was not in the stable, and that confirmed all of the villagers' suspicion. Well, th- this is bad. You were a fool. You could have you made enough money to retire. You could have left your son uh, uh, savings to live on, but now you have nothing. You could have asked whatever you wanted. No amount would have been too high, but, but this is bad. And you're free, your life forever is going to be bad now because he didn't sell the horse. The old man said, say not that this is bad. Say only that the horse is missing. People laughed. Now this is bad. The horse is gone. Are you kidding me? You're, you've, you've doomed yourself to a life of poverty. Well, two weeks later, the horse comes back and he brings along 12 wild horses. He hadn't been stolen. He was just wandering around in the woods making friends. And he comes back with a dozen wild horses. The village just said, Oh, old man, you you were right and we were wrong. It was good that he left. And it's good that he's back. And the old man said, Say that this is good. Say only that the horse is back and he brought friends. And they said, Oh, well, you're, you're a fool. Because you can you can break those horses and sell them and 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 and, and you can keep your original horse and, and once again you're set up for life. Well, a week later, his son broke both legs. Trying to, trying to break in the horses. He was on a horse, the horse bucked. He broke both legs, crippled him for life. And the people said, oh, this is bad. No, you were, you were right. The horses coming back was bad because, because your son at least could have helped you, could have taken care of you in your old age, but now, now he's crippled and you're going to have to take care of him. Oh, you were right, this is bad. And the man said, say not that this is bad. Say only that my son got hurt. You people are obsessed with Judging. Well, a few weeks later, the country went to war and the army came through the village and drafted all of the young men except the one with the broken legs because he wasn't fit to go to war. And the people of the village once again came to this man's house and said, you were right. Your son breaking his legs was good because our sons, the the enemy is going to defeat us. We're never going to see our sons again. But your son, you still have him. And, 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 and we don't have ours. So this, this was good. It was good that your son broke his legs. And he says, say not that this is good. Say not that this is bad. No one, no one knows how this story is going to end. You're, you're reading one sentence out of a chapter, one chapter out of a book, and you're thinking that you know how it ends. Say not that this is bad. Say only that my son is still with me. Say not that this is good. Say only that your sons are, are not with you. And, and I've heard versions of the story that keep going and keep going and keep going. Because, because, because the story could keep going. Our stories keep going. But far enough to make the point, you can stop anywhere along the way and think that you know what's happening. Our minds that are constantly seeking to find meaning and order in a chaotic universe will judge. This is good. This is bad. This is favorable. This is unfavorable. We think we know what's happening. We think we know what God is doing. And the more sure we are, the more likely it is we're wrong. Because <laughs> we can't see all the pieces on the chessboard, how they interact with one another. We, we can't even see the whole board. All of that said, I think Lucato's story misses it in one regard. He does a good job of capturing God's enormity, right? His ability to manipulate events and circumstances according to his will. He points to God's omniscience, God's omnipotence, but he shortchanges God's benevolence. That story, it makes a point, but it also ignores God's promises. Verse 30, as we wrap up. Whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Justified. Those he forgave. Those he adopted. Those, we would say, who were saved will be glorified. Paul speaks here in the prophetic past tense. We're not glorified yet, but Paul speaks of it as if it's already happened because if God has promised it, it's gonna. He can speak as if it's done. God has promised that having been justified, you and I will be glorified. But what Paul's been talking about this morning is everything that's in between. Between the already of our justification and the not yet of our sanctification is what? I'm sorry, of our glorification, stepped on the punchline, (laughs) is our sanctification. Everything that happens to us between here and here is part of getting us there between justification and glorification is sanctification, is the surgery. Some of it we see, a lot of it is behind that drape. Some of it is joyful, some of it is hurtful. Some of it seem to make sense, some of it is utterly confusing. But it's all God getting us ready. It's God using the world and the events of the world and the people of the world To make us more like his son. To conform us, verse 29, into his image. And so knowing that, the right response when the horse runs away, say this is good. I can't see why or how, but I know that it is. The right response when the horse comes back, say that this is good. Maybe not in the way that I think, but it's good. Say this is good even if we can't see how. Say it's going to work out for good even if we know it was intended for evil. Say God will use it for good even if it appears tragic because that's what God does even with things that are bad. He uses them. He doesn't waste them. He sanctifies us with them. John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, says all shall work together for good. Everything that's needful, he sends. Nothing that can be needful, does he withhold. It's a pretty good commentary. Everything that's needful, God sends. Nothing that he withholds can be needful, or he wouldn't withhold it. We can try to rush God's plans, resist them, restrict them to things that accord with our own understanding, or we can rest in God's plans, knowing the things that he's allowing are the things that he's using. The things that he's allowing are things that he's redeeming to conform us. To mold us and shape us into Christ's likeness. To make us people who are wise like Jesus. Kind like Jesus. Joyful and faithful like Jesus. Humble like Jesus. True and good and noble like Jesus. God uses them to prepare us to rule and reign with Jesus. And Lord, we know we do not make that easy. I mean, nothing's hard for you. But we do resist and we do rush in. And we do try to put you in little boxes. Lord, teach us surrender. And, and you are. That's part of this sanctification process. That's part of the surgery. Teach us to rest, to lie quietly on the table, to let you have your way. Teach us surrender. Teach us how much better things are, how much faster things get better when we rest in you. Lord, bring to mind your promises. And let them be more than words, more than bumper stickers, more than hollow phrases in our lives. Let them be truths that we wield as weapons. Truths that defeat the lies of the enemy. Truths that remind us who you are. and help build our faith.
1: I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind because I know there is peace within your presence, I speak Jesus. I just want to speak the name of Jesus, till every dark addiction starts to break, declaring there is hope and there is freedom speak Jesus because your name is Jesus. Cause your name is power, your name is healing, your name is life. Break every stronghold, shine through the shadows, burn like a fire. Jesus in the streets Jesus in the darkness over every enemy Jesus for my family I speak the holy name Jesus Cuz your name is power Your name is healing Your name Every stronghold shine through the shadows, burn like a fire. Cause your name is power because your name is power, your name is healing, your name is life, break every strong. The shadows burn like a fire. I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind. Because I know there is peace within His presence. I speak Jesus.
0: I can't remember which of our worship leaders brought that song in, but there was a conversation about it. When when a worship leader says, "Hey, I want to bring a song in," or, or when a pastor says, "Hey, have you have you have you listened to this?" or someone from you know one of you says, "Hey, there's there's a there's a really good song that's been ministering to me." Um, Maybe, maybe maybe it's for corporate worship or maybe it's just for... Anyway, we, we, we sit down, we have a conversation, we pray over it. And one of, the, one of the questions that was raised about this song, and, and, and a few songs that um, have been written lately and that we've brought in lately, is, is, it, is it too Nabin and Claimity? Is it too bold? Is, are we instructing God? Because obviously that's not a line that we want to cross, ever. <laughs> but, but if you parse it... It's not. It's agreeing with God. Every every one of those declarations is claiming a promise that God has made. And God has promised us this morning. He's reminded us this morning. He's with us. With us in the sense that he's for us, not against us. With us in the sense that he's never going to leave us or forsake us. And when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit prays for us. But when we don't know how to pray, we can also fall back and claim the promises God has spoken over us. We can remind ourselves of things that God has said are true. But one of them is undeniably The Spirit of the living God dwells in us and pleads our case before God who wants already to do what's best for us and knows what that is. So let's stand together as we close. And let's agree with that and ask the Holy Spirit to do what he's promised to do, to love us, and lead us and intercede for us.